Welcome to Ridgecrest Baptist. We thank you for listening. Now, here is this week's message. Job, I want to encourage you now to open your Bibles to Judges chapter 3. We're going to look at verse 7 in just a moment. Judges chapter 3 and verse 7 as we continue what I think is an amazing journey through the book of Judges and this incredible portrait of one true Savior. The title of the sermon series is One True Savior. The title of this sermon tonight is The Broken Messenger. I think most of us would look at people in the ancient world or maybe even in third world countries today that practice idolatry and worship little idols or statues and think about Old Testament idolatry and think, you know, how, how dumb that is that anybody would worship a little tiny piece of wood, a little tiny idol. And uh, the question might be, what is the power of idols in uh, different parts of, of uh, the world? And it, it's important to understand that, first of all, these cultures really don't believe that the, the idol itself is the God, but the spirit of the gods that they worship and dwell that statue after it's made. And so, in a sense, that helps make it a little bit clearer, but at least they are knowing that there's a physical thing that they're worshiping. And I think the problem in America today, and I've said this before, is that there's a lot of Americans that are in practicing idolatry and they don't even know that they're worshiping false gods. And so idols are really hard to identify. They're insidious. They're difficult to see in the American uh, Christian experience, especially. And even uh, believers can have idols in their life and certainly unbelievers can, too. And the problem with idols is they bring us into a cycle of, of uh, failure in life. And we talked about this two weeks ago, this cycle of failure that the, the people of God, the uh, Hebrew people, were caught up in in the book of Judges, where they would live through a cycle of uh, life that looks something like a phase of worshiping a, a false god in their life that actually was enjoyable to them. And they they had an experience with that God of really, you could even argue it was sin was fun for a season. But very quickly, or at least in a, after a, a period, that phase would give way to more of a, an enslavement to the, to the idols and that sin. And that's what happens in our life. You know, sin takes you um, and grabs you and it holds you longer than you ever expected it would. And so in the case of the Hebrew people, they were living a, a life where they were enslaved to other nations because those nations were um, practicing idolatry and they, they fell under the, the religions of those cultures. They eventually would fall under the control of that king of the pagan nations. And then there would be this phase of despair where they were in agony and misery and they would cry out in desperation to the Lord for rescue. And finally, in, in their crying out and realizing they were, they were at the end of their rope, God would be faithful to answer them because God is a God of unrelenting faithfulness. And what God would do is in his attributes of kindness, grace and mercy, he would raise up, as the Bible says, and, it, and that's an important term, raise up a judge, which was really not a judge in the legal sense, but a savior, a savior leader to deliver them on behalf of God through the power of God. And we call this cycle that we talked about two weeks ago the Ferris wheel of failure. So it's like riding a Ferris wheel, and uh, I'm terrified of heights, and I was thinking about the guys in the uh, bucket ups up high yesterday painting the cross, and just the, the fear of heights. And so that, you know, in my mind is when you get up high, and that's the Ferris wheel of failure, that part where you're in despair, and, and you cry out to God, and then 
and that they would be relieved of their fears in life by coming back down toward the ground. And but it was a cycle that would repeat itself just about the time they approached the ground, if you will, and, and sort of felt like, OK, I'm not scared in life anymore. I'm not terrified. They would fall right back into the next cycle of idolatry. And we would think, again, this doesn't make any sense. Why would somebody go through the Christian life even? There's Christians today that write a Ferris wheel of failure in their life. There's a lot of people that are lost today that are writing a Ferris wheel of failure where they're never actually truly converted. And they go round and round. And, you know, believers can live this way in a sense of moving from victory to apathy to defeat to back to really to misery and then crying out in a state of revival, having a period of victory in their life. And that's not God's will for our life. God doesn't want us to live a cycle of up and down. He, want us, he wants us to become people that ride through life in a stable type of trajectory rather than an up and down Christian experience. And we can do that tonight. We can see ways that we can do that. But first of all, we have to, again, understand the power of idols in our life. And if there's any false gods that we have a tendency to worship, whether it's, again, money, security, people, children, jobs, positions, titles, all of those kinds of things become false gods to us in the American culture. And so the danger of idols is that they can uh, come into our life and they're, they're perfectly happy to share the throne with Jesus. Unlike God, they're not a jealous God. They don't push God out of the way. And so oftentimes uh, these idols can cohabitate uh, with the Lord himself in our life. And so the idols of our culture are attractive because of that. For one, for one thing, idols don't demand total lordship like God himself does. Idols, uh, they don't deny total self-denial and selflessness. They are happy for you to be selfish and they're happy... Um, to let you be in control. And so there's a power of idols in our life. And basically, this is the picture of Israel in Judges chapter 3. And obviously, it's a negative picture. Let's begin looking at the text in this story with verse 7. Judges chapter 3, verse 7. The sons of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord and forgot the Lord their God and served the Baals and the Ashtaroth. What God calls evil here is actually, a, you could break it down into a twofold decision. You turn away from God and then you forget about God and you serve other gods in the world. And in the Bible, when we see this term remembering and forgetting, it is to be understood in a spiritual sense. It is not a literal forgetting. It's not a, a literal remembering in terms of um, especially forgetting. They did not literally forget God as in, oh, we forgot about God. When people in the Old Testament would often talk to God in prayers, if you study the Old Testament prayers and they were asking God to do something, they would say things like, God, remember your mercy and your love. And what they were saying is, we want you to act in accordance with your who you are, your character. They weren't asking God to literally recall something that he had forgotten, but to act on their behalf in in accordance with their na with his nature. And so when Israel said they forgot their Lord, what they really were saying is they forgot what God had done for them. They were failing to act in accordance with their own character as God's chosen people. Well, you know, when believers sin, we're failing to act in the, in the agreement with the nature that God has turned us into. As believers after conversion, if any man be in Christ, he's a new creation. And so the 
we need to, uh, again, have this central reflection on the gospel daily as a, as a way to attack the power of idolatry in our lives. We need what I would call a daily dose of the gospel. In Second Peter chapter 1 and verses 5 through 9, and Carson's been gracious enough to help me out with that, Peter talked about remembering the gospel. Listen to what he said, and, and he walks us through this list. In 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 5, it says, Now for this very reason also applying all diligence in your faiths, supply moral excellence, and in your moral excellence, knowledge, and in your knowledge, self-control, and in your self-control, perseverance, and in your perseverance, godliness, and in your godliness, brotherly kindness, and in your brotherly kindness, love. For if these qualities are yours... And are increasing, they render you neither useless nor unfruitful in the true knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. And verse 9 is the key verse. For he or she who lacks these qualities is blind or short-sighted, having forgotten his purification from his former sins. What Peter is saying is uh, when your salvation becomes a daily remembrance in your life and you remember you know, who you are in Christ daily, it helps us to have motivation and strength to resist the counterfeit gods that might tempt us in life. So even years after we're saved, we need the gospel. The gospel is not the A, B, C's of getting saved. It's the A through Z of the Christian life. And in Judges chapter 3, verse 7, it says that they worship Baal and Asherah. Baal, by the way, just to give you a little background, was the bull god, and he was the, the god of the ground, and Asherah was the female god of the sea, and their religion involved uh, trying to, to come up with a way to try to do whatever they wanted in life and to be able to, at the same time, couch it in religious terms. And so what they came up with was this idea that it was ritualistic uniting of the bull and the sea together in these uh, ritualistic events and we'll just leave it at that, where the worship of idols was promoting the, ritual, the ritualistic unification of Baal and Asherah. And let's just say this, there was no shortage of men in that church, all right? They were, it was a popular religion, and it kind of helps explain why this practice uh, was so attractive to the Hebrew people when they would watch these pagan nations around them practice this type of idolatry. But again, you have this... Ferris wheel of failure whenever the Israelites would serve the Baals and serve Ashtoreth. What I'm trying to tell you is that sin leads to emptiness and it will lead to darkness in your life. It will lead to despair. And God's will is not to prohibit uh, fun and pleasure in life, but to, to give us the enjoyment we, we seek by doing it God's way. So in chapter 3, verse 8, the Bible says that they were in despair and they were finally sold into the hands of an evil king. This king's name was Cushanrash Athem, which actually means double dark, double evil. I mean, he was so bad, he was so evil, he wasn't just evil or dark, he was double dark. I mean, he was in southern terminology, show enough dark. He was bad. And so and he holds Israel for eight years in misery and despair uh, and the Bible says in verse 9, when Israel cried out to the Lord for help, the Lord raised up a man to rescue them. And his name was Othniel. Othniel, he was the first savior 
of Israel that we call a judge. And Othniel is an interesting name because it actually means the Lion of God. And it says that he was empowered by the Holy Spirit. He was named the Lion of God, and he was from the tribe of Judah. He was the Lion of the tribe of Judah, full of the Holy Spirit. And he is not described in any negative terms. And his story is short, but basically he was highly successful, and he was almost ideal And if you read through this chapter later on, what you're going to find is that in verse 11, he was able to lead them to see rest for 40 years. And so if we were telling this story, we get to this place and we think the land had rest for 40 years in verse 11. And we think, whoo, well, we're so glad that that that's behind us. And we're thinking we're so thankful that everything ended happily ever after in the story uh, comes to a close there, and then we unfortunately have to read on, and it says, And Othniel, the son of Kenaz, died. And so our Savior has died, and he's dead, and he's gone, and he's left us alone. And what we need in life is more than a human Savior. What we need in life is a lion from the tribe of Judah. He'll never leave us nor forsake us. And if he dies, he'll come back to life again. So Othniel is dead, and that leads us into the main story I want us to look at tonight. And it begins in verse 12, and I'm going to read verses 12 through 14. It says, Now the sons of Israel again did evil in in the sight of the Lord. So the Lord strengthened Eglon, the king of Moab, against Israel, because they had done evil in the sight of the Lord. And he gathered to himself the son of Ammon and Amalek, and he went and defeated Israel, and they possessed the city of the palm trees. The sons of Israel served Eglon, the king of Moab, 18 years. So, sadly, the Ferris wheel of failure continues, and we're back on it, going right back up again. When we had the opportunity to get off at the bottom, we opted not to, and here we go again. And once again, the cycle goes back up. And this time, it's not, a, it's not quite as fast as it was the last cycle around the Ferris wheel of failure. Last time, it was eight years, but this time, it was 18 years of misery and wasted life. This is a picture of us when we choose anything over total obedience to Christ and total surrender to Christ and the Lordship of Christ in our lives. And it says in verse 13 that the God's people lost the city of Palms. That was Jericho. And if you know your Old Testament stories from the book of Joshua, chapter 6, the previous book of the Bible, what you would remember is that Jericho was this place where the walls came down, just like we sang about a minute ago. It was a place where Joshua had led the children of Israel, to walk around this mighty fortress with walls as wider than this room is and uh, made of solid stone. And for um, everybody, it seemed impenetrable, but they walked around that, as you well know the story, and the, the walls came tumbling down. And it became a symbol of one of the greatest victories of Israel, of all of God's supernatural work in the life of Israel. It was Jericho. And Eglon, this evil king, I mean, Eglon sounds bad. Eglon, that's bad. He's now in the city of Palms. He's in Jericho. And it's a sad story because it shows that sin has caused the retaking of territory that once was a symbol of victory in life. 
And so God、uh, proves himself once again to be faithful, as we see here. Look at verse 15. It says, But when the sons of Israel cried to the Lord, the Lord raised up a deliverer for them, Ehud, the son of Gera the Benjamite, a left handed man. And again, in mercy, in grace, in kindness, God raised up Ehud from the tribe of Benjamin. And to the original readers, this would be striking because it says he was a left handed man. You see, this, the, the word Benjamin, the tribe of Benjamin, a Benjamite was proud of the fact that he was a Benjamite because it means son of my right hand. And, and Benjamin was the son of the right hand, and the, the Benjamites were proud of that fact because in biblical terms, in biblical symbology, the right hand is the, is the right hand is the right hand of honor. It's the hand of strength. Now, I don't mean to belittle anybody in here that's left handed, but across the times of ancient,、uh, history, and there's been a lot of famous people that have been left handed, The, the, and one of the most famous that we're all looking forward to watching in a few weeks is our man Tua, right? But that, the, over time, if Tua had lived back in the day, they would have done like, said, Tua, you can't throw the ball with your left hand. You got to put it in your right hand. They forced people to become right-handed because the, the right hand was the hand of power. It wasn't a, it wasn't an option really to be left-handed. In ancient, in the ancient world. And if you think about、uh, a famous text of the Bible, it's、uh, Psalm 110, where Jesus quoted a psalm where he talked about this with the Pharisees. Jesus asked the Pharisees, who, who do you think the Messiah is? Who is the Messiah going to be? And of course, their answer was, he'll be the son of David. And this was in Matthew, it's in several places, but I hope that it's on the screen here, Matthew 22. This is Matthew 22 and verse 43 and 46. And here's what Jesus said. Jesus said to them, that's the Pharisees, then how does David in the Spirit call him Lord, saying, this is Psalm 110. In verse 44, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies beneath your feet. If David, this is Christ talking, Jesus said, if David then calls him Lord, how is he his son? And this is one of my favorite verses. No one could answer him. No one was able to answer him a word, nor did anyone dare from that day on to ask him another question. All right, so Jesus has the、uh, remarkable ability. To end the questions. But in this case, he was showing them that the Messiah was said to be by the Father、um, divine. The Lord, the Lord said to my Lord, Yahweh said to Adonai, Sit at my right hand. I'll do it this way for you. Sit at my right hand, the place of honor, the place of power. The place of strength until I make your enemies a footstool. It was a messianic prophecy. And the beauty of it is we have this Trinitarian picture where it's David in the spirit is able to write this scripture. Jesus elevating scripture in Psalm 110 to divine、uh, hand of God, writing、uh, by the power of the Holy Spirit. And the answer they gave was,、um, 
We don't know what your answer is. The Pharisees said to Jesus, we don't know what your answer is. But one thing we do know is that you're not the Messiah. Because when the Messiah comes, he's not going to be weak. He's not going to be a carpenter. And he's most certainly not going to be from the Galilee. And nothing good comes out of Nazareth, Nathaniel said. He's not from Nazareth. He's not a lowly carpenter. He's not born out of wedlock like you were. He's not weak. He's powerful. The Messiah that we're looking for is going to overthrow the Roman Empire and give us political freedom and liberation and usher in our blessings and material wealth that we deserve as God's people for our righteousness. So we're not looking for a weak and powerless Savior. We're looking for a a powerful warrior king. And so we know that um, the right hand is that place of strength. And the readers and judges, when hearing that, would have reacted much more by surprise than we would because we don't think anything about people being left-handed. It's normal. So we just would see that as, oh, what's the big deal? That's just a comment. Uh, It's kind of a, you know, I guess it's just a neat fact about Ehud that he was left-handed. No, remember, there's nothing in there that's not in there by, for a reason. And so our, our job is to be the detectives to understand what that reason is. And again, in the Hebrew narrative, they write in such a way that they don't crash you over the head. Remember, I talked to you about that a few weeks ago. They're not going to take a board and hit you over the head and go, hey, this is highlighted in the text. Really pay attention. That's just not the way they did it because they wanted you to, to meditate, to pay attention, to focus to listen, to read over and over, to consider, to think deeply on these topics. And what we see this comment, Ehud was a left-handed man from the tribe of the, 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 the men that sit at the right hand of God. That was something that stood out at them as remarkable because he's the guy that was raised up by God to deliver Israel. And what even would have hit them with more clarity than it does us is what the Hebrew original text literally says, which is this. Ehud was unable to use his right hand. So apparently it was not that he was left-handed, but that he was unable to use his right hand because it was damaged, injured, or paralyzed, but certainly visibly broken. Maybe I should do it this way, visibly broken. You could look at Ehud's left hand and see that it was broken. It was a surprising pick. Actually, it would be this way, wouldn't it? It was the right hand. It was his good left hand. So the right hand was broken. And you could see that by looking at him. So the Bible teaches that God picked somebody who was imperfect, or weak, and broken. And one of the themes that runs throughout the Scriptures is that God is opposed to people that are proud. And God wants to humble people and use people that are humble. Proverbs sixteen eighteen says, Pride goes before destruction and a haughty spirit before stumbling. And James 4, 6 says, God is opposed to the proud, but gives grace to the humble. And so the brokenness that's represented here was the, was a picture that Ehud was a humble man. He was a humbled man 
who had become dependent upon God's power that was within him for victory. And that's why God raised him up as a broken savior. And I want us to look back now and, and go back to verse 15 and let's and stay with me as we continue our story here. Verse 15, but when the sons of Israel cried to the Lord, the Lord raised up a deliverer for them. Ehud, the son of Gera, the Benjamite, a left handed man, and the sons of Israel sent tribute by him to Eglon, the king of Moab. Ehud made himself a sword which had two edges, a cubit in length, and he bound it on his right thigh under his cloak. He presented the tribute to Eglon, king of Moab. Now, Eglon was a very fat man. It came about when he had finished presenting the tribute, when Eglon had, excuse me, when Ehud had finished presenting the tribute, that he sent away the people who carried the tribute, but he himself turned back from the idols which were at Gilgal. Returning to Eglon, he said, I have a secret message for you, O king. And Eglon said, keep silence, and all who attended him left him. So let's stop there and think about what's just happened. Ehud goes and gives a tribute to Eglon, the evil king. And then they leave and they go back. To, and at, the, the, at this place of, of great markers where Joshua had placed stone markers, where now in Israel there had become pagan idols in the land where, that marred the victory of crossing the, the, that Jordan River, now you had um, this turning back of, of Ehud going back to the king a second time. And it said he had a, because he had a, a cloak covering up his right thigh where he had a long double-edged sword, he was able to approach the king. You know, the Bible calls the scriptures a double-edged sword. It says in Hebrews chapter 4, verse 12, For the word of God is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword. And our text states specifically it was strapped to his, his right thigh because um, it was his left hand that was good. And so if you think about it, what you have to do in those days, everybody fights with their right hand. They would always strap their swords to the left side, you would reach across, grab the sword, and pull it out of the sheath this way. And so when you're walking around and the king can see your left side is bare and there's nothing strapped to your left side, it was a picture that this broken man, Ehud, was unarmed and harmless. And it helps us understand why the king was so willing to just dismiss his bodyguards as far as Eglon, this evil king, was concerned. This was a man who couldn't hurt him. He was uh, a helpless man, a weak man, a broken man. And so Eglon thinks, well, he brought me tribute once. Now he's got a message, a secret message that he wants me to read or hear. And he's thinking it's going to be a positive thing. And the Bible is teaching us here something that's very important, and I think it speaks to a lot of people in life that have either sinned or have made mistakes in life or both. And they're asking, God, can you do anything with my life? 
So one of the principles of this scripture passage is this. God uses broken people in unexpected ways. And he does so against overwhelming odds. God uses broken people in unexpected ways, in surprising ways. And if you're here tonight and you've made some mistakes in your life, or you know you, uh, and we all have, and if you are broken from the sin in your life, then the good news is God is willing to forgive you of your past and use you in your future. And so Ehud had this secret message to bring the enemy king, and the king ordered his bodyguards to leave. And the question now becomes, what is, what is this secret message? And we're now up on the edge of our seats thinking, we want to know what the secret message is. And let's continue back in our story again at verse 19 and follow with me. In verse 19 it says, but he himself, but Ehud himself turned back from the idols which were at Gilgal and said, I have a secret message for you, O king. And he said, keep silence. And all who attended him left him. Ehud came to him while he was sitting in his cool room chamber, and Ehud said, I have a message from God for you. And he, that is Eglon, arose from his seat. Ehud stretched out his left hand, took the sword from his right thigh, and thrust it into his belly. And he fell to his death. It was a surprise It was a surprise um, messenger. Ehud had reached this point where um, he was face to face with the evil king. And the only way that he had gotten there was because he was broken. It was his very weakness that allowed him to be in a position where he could be the man of God. And it was the surprise that allowed... um, him to approach because Eglon assumed because his left thigh was bare that he was unarmed. And we have this miraculous um, surprise victory over the king. Literally like in chess, it was checkmate immediately while all the pieces were still on the, 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 check, the chessboard. And so um, as the story goes, and you can read it later on, Ehud escapes down a, a passageway uh, by locking the doors. He climbs out the window and he escapes in the darkness of the night and he travels back to the men of Israel and he rallies them and says, come and follow me. God's on our side. And it, look at verse 26 and we'll finish the story. Verse 26 says, now Ehud escaped while they were delaying and he passed by the idols and escaped to Shirah. It came about when he had arrived that he blew the trumpet in the hill country of Ephraim and the sons of Israel went down with him from the hill country and he was in front of them. He said to them, pursue them for the Lord has given your enemies, the Moabites, into your hands. So they went down after him and seized the fords of the Jordan opposite Moab and did not allow anyone to cross. They struck down at that time about 10,000 Moabites, all robust and valiant men and no one escaped. Verse 30, so Moab was subdued that day under the hand of Israel, and the land was undisturbed for 80 years. What a surprise message that was. The story teaches us about our own brokenness and how God can redeem us from our own brokenness if 
we repent. And that's the why on your, your sheet I wrote a truth. And I, I'm, if, if you have a note sheet, I had this key takeaway from this story, and I called it God's truth. And, it's, and I'm going to fill the blanks in for you here. God's truth on this, in this story is that God can redeem the deeply broken and bring surprising victory against overwhelming odds for the praise of Christ, our one true Savior and King. God can redeem the deeply broken and bring surprising victory against overwhelming odds for the praise of Christ, our one true Savior and King. That's the purpose um, of God's truth here. And I just want to drive home the, the word can because you have to be willing to admit that you're broken. If you're not willing to admit you're broken, you can't be redeemed. If you don't ever, a person says, I don't need a savior, I'm not broken. I'm not so badly broken that I can't fix it myself. Then you're never going to be saved. You're never going to be born again. To be born again requires you to realize you need a savior. You have to be redeemable. And tonight you have to come first and foremost to God and say, God, I need your help in life. I need you to not just give me a little help, but I totally surrender to my life to you as Lord. And you can be redeemed if you repent in that way and humble yourself in that way. That's part of the purpose of the story. But the greater purpose, and again, and for, for a believer, if you're already saved, it's an encouraging story of how God uses our sin. It, it also speaks to how God uses our weakness, our personality weakness, maybe a lack of talent that we think we don't have to serve God. And God is saying, in my power, in my strength, your brokenness can actually become a strength. So there's, a, there's an application to both unbelievers who are lost and separated from God and broken by sin and shame, as well as people who are broken in life from just their weaknesses in life and the problems of life. And God wants to redeem those to bring victory to you, to get you off of Ferris wheel of failure. And it requires, again, the same application. Because Christ gave his all, we give all of our worship to him as our one true Savior and King. And in doing that, we begin to move out of a cycle of up and down and, and move toward a life of victory that's more stable. And those are two good principles that God wants us to take home and permanently understand from the story of Ehud. But there's one other great purpose of this story, and that is that great purpose is to point you to the work of one person. We need a Savior who can win our salvation like Ehud did in the face of overwhelming odds through his weaknesses, but we need one who's not going to eventually die and leave us. Ehud teaches us that his brokenness allowed him to have that surprise message and, there's, and there was victory there, but then he's going to die and he's not going to be the last Savior, because we're, as we're going to see, they're going to go back into idolatry. Ehud was a human person. He was not even the right human choice. I mean, he was left-handed. He was not powerful. He was weak. In the same way, God works a surprising victory out through our Savior. Because God offered us the ultimate rescue in life in a surprising message as well. 
He came, our Savior, He came to earth in a very weak way, did He not? Did He not uh, enter into the divine Son of God, entering into the nature of man in a manger of all places? But this was, this was prophesied. The, the prophet Isaiah said 800 years before the Lord that the, the, the Redeemer, Savior King, the Messiah, would be a broken man, a weak man. You know Isaiah 53, verses 1 through 5, says, do you have that, brother? The broken, this is Isaiah 53, who has believed our message and to whom has the arm? The Lord been revealed, for he grew up before for he grew up before him like a tender shoot, and like a root out of a parched ground, he has no stately form or majesty that we should look upon him, that is the Messiah, nor nor appearance that we should be attracted to him. There was nothing attractive about the, the Lord Jesus, the Bible says in Isaiah fifty three, four. And then we have Isaiah fifty three, five. But he was pierced through for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The chastening for our well-being fell upon him. By his scourging, by his stripes, we are healed. You see, what happened was Jesus became weak on our behalf. He was the ultimate left-handed Savior. He was crushed for our iniquities. And the Bible says on the night before his crucifixion, the Lord Jesus took a loaf of bread and held it before his disciples and said, this is my body, which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And he went to the cross the next morning and he bore the wrath of God on your behalf. And he died in weakness. But on Sunday morning, the Lord Jesus walked out of the grave in power. And he was alive and well, and he took a double-edged sword of Scripture into his left hand, and he stabbed it deep into the belly of death and said, It is finished. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ, our one true Savior. Pray with me. Father, we understand that this is a picture in Scripture of who Jesus would be, a facet of his life, that he was not going to be an attractive, powerful warrior who would enter in the first time in power to overthrow Rome. We understand, God, now this is a picture of the weakness that Jesus came as the humble servant who washed the feet of people who was willing to to live and hang out and be and touch lepers and sinners and prostitutes and the worst of society because He loved them and He wanted to redeem them. And so, Lord, we worship You because You've made us Your children. And we know, God, in our weakness that You're made strong. And we thank You for it in Christ's mighty name. We hope this message will help you in your spiritual walk and growth. For more about Ridgecrest, please visit us on the web at www.rbc-tuscaloosa.com.
Have a great day, and God bless.